Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation in chapter 2. Revelations chapter 2 and 3 contains seven letters to seven different churches dictated to John by the risen Christ. And each letter is an evaluation. Each letter, if you like, is a report card on each one of these seven local churches. And the message is not limited to those local churches in 95 A.D., but as each letter indicates, it's to anyone in any age who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says. And so these churches apply to us today, and I pray that we will have ears to hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us in 1990. Now, last time we looked at the letter to Ephesus, the church that left their first love, Today we'll see the, church, or the letter to the church in Smyrna, the suffering church. And that's Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Only four verses long. This is the shortest of the seven letters. And it's perhaps the shortest of the seven letters because Christ didn't have anything to condemn them for. There's no condemnation in this letter. And one of the byproducts of suffering is purity. Persecution refines. It has the effect of weeding out sin in our lives individually, and it has the effect of weeding out those who aren't genuine. You don't suffer and lose your life for something you don't believe in. And so suffering purifies. This is the church that pleased Christ. This is a church that got good grades. This is a suffering church. It was located in the city of Smyrna, And Smyrna was a fabulous city. It was located about 40 miles directly north of Ephesus. It was perhaps the most beautiful city in Asia Minor. In fact, Alexander the Great picked out this city as his model city. And he had a plan to make it into a wonderful city and develop it into a model of what other cities should be like. And of course, he died in his mid-30s, but one of his generals, Lysimachus, picked up the project and finished it about 290 B.C. It was a magnificent city. It was referred to as the crown of Asia. Economically, the large variety of coins found by archaeologists clearly indicate that Smyrna was a wealthy city. It got its wealth from being a trading center. It was a port city. It had a natural landlocked harbor. It was on the direct trade route from India and Persia to Rome. Their major export was myrrh, and because of its extensive trade in myrrh, it came to be known as the Port of Fragrance. Politically, Smyrna, like Ephesus, was a free city. They had no Roman garrison. They uh, governed themselves. Culturally, Smyrna was known for its elaborate Greek architecture and its Greek literature. They erected a monument to the famous Homer, who was born in Smyrna. Religiously, Smyrna was a center of pagan worship. They had temples to, and, and idols to Zeus and Hermes and Apollo and Aphrodite and Mercury and many others. In fact, they also were the site for a temple established for the worship of Caesar, which was mandatory at the time that John wrote. And if a person declared his allegiance to Christ and him only, he ran the risk of losing his job, his family, his reputation, and even his life. And yet against this background sprang up this band of 
people, this church, that love Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know how this church began, and we don't know its size. We don't know very much about its details. We can project that it probably was an offshoot from the church in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 10, it says that while Paul was in Ephesus establishing that church, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so it seems to indicate from out of Ephesus, people went out and established churches, and that's probably the way this church in Smyrna got its start. Now, Smyrna is the Greek word for myrrh. And so this city got its name from its chief export. And myrrh was a gum-like resin taken from a shrubby, thorny balsam tree. It was used for perfume, and it was used to embalm bodies. And interestingly enough, the word myrrh is only used three other times in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew chapter 2, where it says that the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's used in Mark chapter 15 on the cross, where Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh to dull his senses. And it's used in John chapter 19, where it says that when they buried Jesus, they wrapped him in linen with a hundred-pound mixture of aloes and myrrh. So interestingly enough, we find myrrh at the birth of the Lord Jesus. We find myrrh at the death of the Lord Jesus. And then we find myrrh at the burial of the Lord Jesus. And myrrh seems to be associated with this idea of suffering. In fact, interestingly enough, there's a verse in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 6 that talks about a future day. And it says, in the future day, men will bring to the king gold and frankincense, but it doesn't mention myrrh. And so at the birth of the Lord Jesus, the myrrh that came in there reminded us that he came to suffer. On the cross, we're reminded again that he was there to suffer for us when the myrrh was offered to him. And then in his, in his burial, he was wrapped in myrrh, reminding us again of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. And so here we have the church call, in the city called Myrrh, and it's fitting that it happens to be the suffering church. The interesting thing about myrrh is that it doesn't smell like anything until you crush it. It doesn't give off any kind of odor, any kind of fragrance until you stomp on it. And the more you smash it and the more you crush it, the more fragrant it becomes. And isn't that a beautiful symbol of the church that grew up in this city of Smyrna? The more they got crushed, the sweeter they smelled. The more they got stomped on, the more the world caught the fragrance of their faith and their love. And isn't it true that the crushed church is the fragrant church? You know, a lot of people are excited that there's so much freedom going on in the world today, and I think that's a great thing too. But I'm interested to see what that'll do to the churches that have grown up in countries where there's been great political and personal attacks on them, and now they suddenly have all kinds of freedom, and I wonder if that freedom is going to be healthy for the church or whether it's going to be a detriment for the church. Because here we find a church that was suffering. The more Satan bruised the church, the more it released the fragrance of Christ, and the more effective became its testimony, and that's the way suffering works. 
I've got a little 19-month-old girl, and uh, she's a very independent little person. Her favorite line right now is, no, no, Daddy. I can do it. No, no. Stay away. I want to do this myself. It always works out that way until there's some threat. For instance, if a big dog comes along, and big dogs love to lick little 19-month-old baby. They're about the same height. Love to lick them all over the face. So if a big dog comes around, suddenly there's a threat, and she comes running looking for daddy's arms. You see, persecution causes a child to run into daddy's arms, and persecution causes the church to run into God's arms. That's the way it works. And we need to understand that. Persecution doesn't destroy the church. It drives the church to Jesus Christ. We know that from personal experience. When do we lean on the Lord Jesus the most? When we're being persecuted. And that's true of us as individuals. It's true of us as a church. And it was true of the church in Smyrna. And Christ has a message for this church. And I love the way the Lord Jesus introduces himself. In each of these letters, he begins with a description of himself. And his descriptions are taken from John's image of him in chapter 1. And how does he introduce himself to the suffering church? Notice verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Christ describes himself to this suffering church and he says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who was dead and I have come to life. And I see really three ideas born out there. Three ideas that would be very important to a suffering church. Number one, I see this. Christ is emphasizing to them that he is sovereign. He says, I am the first and I am the last. You know, the important and, and the crucial thing when you're suffering is to get some perspective. And, and one of the things you find out about suffering is it, make, it makes you painfully aware of the present. And whenever you're suffering, all you can see is today and this moment. And what we need in the midst of suffering is to get some perspective on things. If we could see the beginning and if we could see the end, we could handle the middle. But suffering often envelops us in the moment. Remember, uh, we were up in uh, St. Louis with uh, Becky Beal when she took her baby up there. And uh, she was sitting in the room waiting to hear some word and, and, and going through a lot of emotional stress and so forth. And she just kind of paused and she said... Right out loud to all of us, she just said, you know, I don't know why I'm so upset because God has proven himself over and over to me. And she began to talk about how God had brought her through incidents in the past and how he'd worked in her life and the promises that God had made. And all of a sudden, it just sort of changed the whole tone of the room because suddenly she got out of the moment and started to look from a better perspective at what had happened in the past and what God had promised would happen in the future. Well, the Lord Jesus writes to this suffering church and he says, I'm the first and the last. I created everything in the beginning. I will consummate everything in the end. And I can sustain everything in the present. I'm sovereign. And that's important to know when we're suffering. And then there's a second aspect, I think, borne out here. And that is the idea that the Lord Jesus is our Savior. And he says in verse 8, describes himself as the one who was dead and has come 
to life. He died for our sins and he rose again. He is our Savior. He's been victorious over death and he lives today ensuring that we will live also. He's already blazed the trail through death and come out the other side and he's waiting for us to follow him. He's our Savior. And so in the midst of suffering, it's exciting to know that we have a Savior, one who is waiting for us to bring us home to himself, one who can give us life. And then there's a third aspect here. He's sovereign, he's our savior, and thirdly, and I think probably most, most thrilling to me, is that he is sympathetic. And it, he says here, writing to this suffering church, I'm the one who was dead and has come to life. And what does he remind them of as he introduces himself? He reminds them that he is the one who has suffered himself. He reminds them that he has gone through what they're going through. He's been there. He can relate to them. And that's exciting to know. And so as he writes to the church at Smyrna, he can sympathize with their sufferings. In fact, if you look at verse 9, he starts out in verse 9 with two words. He says, I know. And one of the things that I try not to do when I go visit someone who is suffering is to say to them, I know. Because that's a very flippant thing to say. You walk into somebody and they're suffering in some circumstance or situation, and you walk up and say, I know exactly how you feel. Well, you know, when somebody does that to me, I hate that. Because I feel like going right back in their face and saying, you don't know at all what I'm feeling, you know, and so on. Well, we usually don't fully understand how somebody feels. And so we should be cautious to come and say, I know what you're going through. Because we probably don't know what they're going through. But what's exciting to me is that the Lord Jesus here can say, I know, and he does. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're experiencing, the Lord Jesus has suffered far more than you ever have. And he can come next to you in your suffering, and he can say, in truth, I know what you're going through. Isn't that exciting? That's exciting to me. It's exciting to me to know that when I come to the to the Lord Jesus in prayer, I don't have to explain my circumstances to Him. I just come to Him and He says, I know, I know what you're going through. I don't have to say, Lord, you can't relate to this. You can't understand this circumstance because you've never been through this. I can say, Lord, you know. And He says to the suffering church, I know, I can relate. I still bear the marks of Calvary. I've suffered everything you suffer and more, he can say, I know. And that's a thr thrilling thing to, for us to know, especially in the midst of suffering, that the Lord Jesus can relate to what we're going through. And so Christ identifies himself as the one who is sovereign, he's in control, he's the one who is our savior, he's provided our salvation, and then he is the one who is sympathetic, he can relate. And so at the very outset, as Christ addresses this suffering church. He's our sovereign, sympathetic Savior. And as he writes to this church, he has three things to say. We can divide this letter up three ways. We can divide it up into the commendation, the counsel, and the challenge. And really, that's the same outline we used last time, only we're one short because we don't have a condemnation, because there is no condemnation as Christ addresses the suffering church. First of all, look at his commendation in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. And there are three things that Christ points out about the church in Smyrna. Three things that characterize them. Number one, tribulation. I know your tribulation. And the word tribulation is an interesting term. It was used by the ancient Greeks for something being crushed under a huge boulder. So the idea of tribulation is something crushing you. That's kind of a descriptive term. And it's an interesting term used here because if you remember, myrrh is only, only produces its fragrance when it gets crushed. And Christ says, I know that you're being crushed. I know that you're feeling the pressures coming down on you and smashing you. And you know, we live in a day when there's tremendous crushing pressure on many people. And there's a pressure of unemployment, the pressure of broken homes, the pressure of wayward children or a wayward mate. There's sleepless nights. There's a scare of an x-ray. There's the fear of danger. There's all kinds of tribulation around us. But when Christ says to the suffering church, I know your tribulation, he's not really talking about that kind of tribulation. We need to handle that kind of tribulation properly, but that's a tribulation that everybody encounters. The kind of tribulation he's talking about here is the kind of tribulation we receive because of our faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, as John writes this letter back in chapter 1 and verse 9, he describes himself as your fellow partaker in the tribulation that is in Jesus. He's talking about the kind of tribulation we get for taking a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's something we can count on. Tribulation for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul knew about tribulation. John knew about tribulation. In fact, he's writing from exile. And the church in Smyrna who he's writing to, knew about tribulation as well. And the Lord Jesus says, I know your tribulation. They were suffering loss of their jobs, loss of their friends, and in many cases, loss of their life for their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I couldn't help asking myself as as I looked at this letter whether I'm experiencing tribulation for my commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you ask yourself that question and get an answer? Am I experiencing tribulation in my life for my commitment to the Lord Jesus? And if you're not, maybe it's because your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is not what it ought to be. Because if I have a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, then I am going to be going against the flow of this culture, and I'm going to receive tribulation. We went to uh, a water park a few years ago. I think it was up in Wisconsin, a place called Noah's Ark. Uh, I don't think it was a Christian organization, but it was kind of interesting there. And uh, one of the things they had, you went down these big slides and tubes, and you did all that until you got pretty tired. And then you went around and you got in this little, I don't know what it was called, a rafting river. Have you seen these? They kind of circle the whole park, and they just kind of mosey along, and you get a little raft, and you lay on this little river, and you just kind of glide along and catch rays. And that's what you do. And uh, I rather enjoyed it. Uh, Just kind of laying there on your raft, and we're just kind of moving along as a family, slowly around the the park. And we got done, and and we stayed there until they ran us out. So they they ran us out, so you got to leave. So we're leaving and, and, and going away. And as we were leaving, I noticed 
a girl got back into this river that we had been in, and she put these goggles on, and she put, like, Vaseline on her body, and she was all greased up. And she started swimming around that river, only she started going the wrong way. And it was amazing to me the kind of commitment that she had to have because she was swimming against this water, this water that seemed so mosey and calm and just kind of moving along. Now she was swimming against it. And there was this tremendous pressure, and you could see it as she was swimming and training for some kind of event that she was going to participate in. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's the way we often are as Christians. We're in the system, and as long as we float along with the system, there's no pressure, and there's no tribulation until we respond to the call of God who calls us to go against the flow and to swim against the way everybody else is going. And when we choose to do that in obedience, we find that we run into tribulation. We find that there's a cost involved. And the church at Smyrna was experiencing that cost. They were experiencing tribulation, and Christ speaking to them says, I know. And then there's a second thing he says that he knows about them, and that is their poverty in verse 9. He says, and I know your poverty. This was a poor church. They weren't just lower middle class. They had nothing. You know, that's kind of hard for us to understand today because we've got so much. But Jesus addressing them says, I know because the Lord Jesus can relate to poverty. He said in, or Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 of the Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. He became poor. Same word is used here. Jesus could say of himself, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus says, I know your poverty, and he understood. But I'd like you to notice the parentheses in verse 9. Because he says, I know your poverty, but... You are rich. Now notice, he doesn't say you are going to be rich. He says you are rich. Now the popular doctrine being taught today is the prosperity doctrine, that you can be prosperous in Jesus, and then if you'll just send me your vow, you will become rich. That's the promise. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say you are poor and you're going to be rich. He says you are poor but you are rich. Now, he's talking there about something besides material things. He's talking about what really matters in life. He says you're poor in material things, but you are rich in what really matters because you are rich in love and joy and peace and grace and fellowship, those things that really matter in life. It's not the material things that are important. It's those spiritual things, those eternal things. That's the same reason that in 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul referred to himself as having nothing, yet possessing all things. I have nothing, but I possess everything because I have what really matters. I have the eternal, immaterial blessings of God. And I think it reminds us that we need to see riches as God sees riches. You know, it's interesting, a little later in chapter 3 and verse 17, he addresses the church at Laodicea, and he says in verse 17 of chapter 3, because you say, I am rich, 
and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Addressing the church in Laodicea, he says, you say I am rich and you are poor. Isn't that interesting? He calls the poor church rich and he calls the rich church poor, which tells me that we need to get in line with God's economy and what God really calls riches. So Paul, or the Lord Jesus, addressing this suffering church says, I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. And then there's a third thing that he knows, and that is persecution. He says, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. This church is being blasphemed. This church is being slandered. And he says, you're being slandered by those who say they are Jews and they are not. They claim to be Jews, but they're not, because we found out in the book of Romans that a true Jew is one who is one inwardly, and these are not. He says, in fact, they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, you wouldn't find that written on their synagogue, synagogue of Satan. He's saying that's who they really are. On their synagogue, it says synagogue of God, and everything they say says that they are God's people, but he says in reality, they are Satan's people and they are a synagogue of Satan because they have rejected the Messiah of God. And anybody who rejects the Lord Jesus is a servant of Satan. And that's what he's spelling out for us here. Now, he's not saying that they are rejected by God or that they are alienated from the future restoration of God. He's simply saying that in their present condition, they profess to be something they're not. They profess to be one of God's and they are not. In fact, they are one of Satan. And the church at Smyrna was a church that was being slandered. People were speaking evil of them. I wonder if you can relate to that. You know, some of you go through abuse for Christ, verbal abuse at work, at school, uh, even among your own family members, even some of you in your own homes receive verbal abuse for your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. 2 Timothy 3, 12 says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's something you can count on. It's something you can expect. And so Christ says to this suffering church, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and I know your persecution. And then he has some counsel for them in verse 10. Christ says, here's my counsel, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Two things he tells them. The second one we'll see in a moment. The first one is, do not fear. That's his counsel. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't let the opposition intimidate you. Don't run scared. Just relax. Don't be afraid. You say, well, I could relax if I knew that the suffering was going to stop. I, I could relax if the Lord was saying, don't be afraid. It's all going to go away. Don't be afraid. Something good is going to happen to you today. Is that what the Lord Jesus says here? No. The Lord Jesus says, don't be afraid. Things are going to get worse. That's what he says. 
Don't be afraid. It's going to get worse. You're going to suffer more. And some of you are going to be imprisoned. And you're going to suffer tribulation 10 days. Now, I don't know what the significance is of that 10 days. But if you'll go back in Scripture, you'll find that 10 days is very often associated with a period of testing. Remember when Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, went into Babylon? And he told the man there, he said, I don't want to eat the king's food. But he said, you give me vegetables and water for 10 days. At the end of that 10 days, you check me out and see if I'm not healthier than everybody else. 10 days was a period of, of testing. And so here he says, you're going to be tested and you're going to suffer tribulation for 10 days. Don't be afraid. Things are going to get worse. And then he gives a second counsel. And that is, at the end of verse 10, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Don't be afraid and be faithful. That's the exhortation of the risen Christ to the suffering church. Hang in there. Be faithful. Don't compromise. Don't shy away. Keep standing firm. You say, well, how long do I have to be faithful, Lord? And he says what? Until death. So next time you're in a situation and you're saying, God, this is killing me. That's no excuse. He's saying be faithful until death. You hang in there in your commitment to me, even if it means your death. And with such a strong exhortation, he knew we'd need an incentive, so he gives us one. And he says, I'll give you the crown of life. Now, the crown of life is not for everybody. It's not for every Christian. The crown of life is for those who remain faithful through, through tribulation and poverty and persecution. In fact, if you just look over to James chapter 1, you'll find the only other place in the New Testament where this, this crown of life is mentioned. And interestingly enough, it's mentioned and promised for the same reason. James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. If you persevere under trial, you'll receive the crown of life. And James equates those who persevere under trial with those who really love the Lord Jesus. Because if you really love the Lord Jesus, you're going to persevere under trial and you're going to be faithful. And he says, I have an incentive for you, and that is the crown of life. And so Christ's counsel to the suffering church is, don't be afraid and be faithful. And then there's a third part of this, this letter, and that is his challenge in verse 11. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This message is for us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And if we're not experiencing any tribulation and suffering for Christ, maybe it's from a lack of commitment. And if we are experiencing tribulation and suffering for Christ, then His message to us is, don't be afraid. Keep being faithful. I'm coming again, and I'll have a reward with me. And then He gives another incentive in verse 11. He says, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Well, the first death is physical death. So the second death would be spiritual death. And he's saying, I want you to be faithful until death, that first death, because that's just physical death. 
But your promise is that you won't be hurt by that second death, the eternal death, the spiritual death, the one that really matters. And so the emphasis here is to focus on future things and focus on unseen things so that we might handle the suffering of this present time. You know, we don't normally think of this as a day of persecution. And let me just update your thinking a little bit. The recently convened International Congress on Evangelism released these figures, and I want to share them with you. They estimate there have been 40 million martyrs in the history of the church. You know how many there have been since 1950? 40 million in the history of the church. Since 1950, there have been 10 million martyrs for Jesus Christ. 25% of all the martyrs who have died in the history of the church have died in the last 40 years. We live in a day of persecution. We don't realize it because we're insulated in the United States. This is a day of persecution. In fact, their projection was that by the year 2000, we would be seeing 25,000 martyrs a year. Are you ready for that? Are you committed to that kind of level, to be committed to the Lord Jesus that way? I know that we've got people in this church you are. We've got Smyrna types in this church, people who presently are suffering for the Lord Jesus, people who are willing to take a stand for the Lord Jesus no matter what it costs, people who will share the message of Jesus Christ with others no matter what they say, no matter how they badmouth you, no matter how they ostracize you or criticize you, no matter what it costs. People who are willing to pay for their boldness for Christ by suffering. Well, Christ has a message for you. Christ is saying, I know what you're going through. Don't be afraid even when the persecution gets worse. Be faithful until death because I'm coming back to give you the crown of life. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the challenge from this letter. And Lord, we have to confess that much of our life is is lived in comfort And we know little of the kind of persecution that's being described in writing to this church. But Father, we pray that we might be Christians who are committed. Committed to such an extent that we're willing to take the the verbal abuse that we receive today. And if and when things get worse in our world, that we will be people who are willing, as you've called us, to be faithful even unto death. And Lord, I pray that we might learn the secret of that kind of obedience by having the right perspective, understanding that you are the first and the last, that you are the one who's in control. And Lord, that we might focus on the future and realize your promise of the crown of life. And Lord, that we might be faithful to you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.